this morning at Rock Valley Bible Church, as you all know, we have been celebrating, acknowledging uh, the sanctity of human life. Uh, we believe at Rock Valley Bible Church that life begins at conception. It's the, the very moment of conception, is the very beginning when human beings are made in the image of God. Even as the, the Gishals sang for us here this morning, Psalm 139, verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And just Psalm 139, as they sang, just speaks about the immense knowledge of God and how familiar he is with us and how well he knows us and is intimately equated with all of our ways, even from the times of Psalm 139, verse 15 says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Just even talking about in the depths of the womb, God was there intricately making every single one of us. So it's not as if God doesn't know about us until we come out of the womb, but he knows about us even from the, the day that we are, are conceived. And in that we do rejoice the church and we make efforts, as Amanda came up and said, to just trying to help foster those who are abortion minded, but who who want to keep their child, if at all possible. Now, the reality is that we live in a society that doesn't believe these things I told you. Life begins at conception. They, they don't believe that. They believe it's later or something. Our society doesn't lift high the sanctity of life. And really, that's demonstrated by the amount of abortions that take place every year in the United States. The number of abortions taking place, we average about a million a year in the United States. I mean, let, let, let that just sink in a million every year in the United States. Roe v. Wade was 1973. And uh, in that time, about 45 years ago, we're talking about 45 million Americans who aren't on the planet because of abortion. The numbers are greater than Hitler and Stalin killed combined. And one of the, the tragic things is this all happened legally. Well, in 2004, um, the Guttmacher Institute anonymously surveyed about 1,000 post-abortive women and, and asked them a question. said, why did you get an abortion? And though this study was 2004, I, I think that the general truths here are, are certainly true for us today as well, just the, the, the findings of what, what they had. And uh, 25% of them responded and said that they can't, they're not ready for a child. A quarter of people just, um, we're just not ready. Kind of like, I'm just not ready. Like, I'm not ready for school. I don't want to go to kindergarten. <clears throat> I don't want to go to seventh grade. I don't want to go to high school. I'm just not ready. 23% said they can't afford a baby. I'm thankful for pregnancy care centers that really take that excuse away. But really, it's sort of, I just, I can't, they think they can't afford a baby. Babies can to be afforded or given up to adoption. 19% said that they, didn't want another child. They have enough. They don't want another one. So that's right there. That's two-thirds. That's about 67%, if I do my math correctly, are those reasons. I just don't want a child, first and third, or don't think I can afford a child. Uh, continuing on down the list, 8% said they, they don't want to be a single mother. Uh, again, the same thing. I don't want a child. I'm, I'm, I just don't want that. 
Uh, 7% said they're not mature enough to raise a child. That maybe is the same as not wanting to be a single mother in some regards, but they think they're too young. Um, 4% said it would interfere with their life. Um, it, that's 90% right there. 90% of women of all abortions take place because really doesn't want the child, doesn't want to pay for the child, wants their own career rather than the child. Now, there were then, beyond that, 7% claiming health reasons of themselves or the baby. The health reasons can be emotional distress, whatever baby could be because of Down syndrome, something like that. I mean, these things are overcomable, perhaps with counseling the number of health reasons, really. Less than 5%, less than 0.5%, rape or incest or something like that. 6% gave no reason. I think that adds up to 100 Percent. Um, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll flick off there, lest you math people say, "No, it's not 100 percent." Where exactly was? Um, but it really calls us as Christians to think about how should we respond, how should we live in our society, and that's one of the reasons why today is here. Is just thinking about how it is that we can respond. And I think that Paul in Romans 12, 19 through 21, has an answer to that question. So you can open your Bibles and turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's on page 948 in your pew Bibles. You can just Turn there, and we'll, you'll be you'll be just fine. Um, these are the last three verses of chapter twelve. Um, we're going to finish these today, Lord willing, and we're going to finish Romans chapter twelve. We've been working verse by verse through Romans chapter twelve since July, and I think it's been good for us. I'm looking forward to ramping up, picking up more speed, and looking at Romans thirteen one through seven next time. And so we're just start picking up paragraph by paragraph uh, from this point in through the rest of Romans. Um, hopefully we'll finish up, whatever, just four or five months or something like that, and we'll finish Romans. And um, again, before we, we read and look at our text, I, I have to remind you of the context of Romans 12. Romans 12 is all response. I mean, all these commands, we can easily forget the indicative for the, the imperative. The imperative is the command. And we can sometimes just look at the command like, what is it we need to do? But if we miss the indicative or what's true or why we need to do what we need to do, we miss everything. Um, God, as he says, he doesn't want sacrifices. He says, enough of burnt offerings, the whole burnt offerings, I'm not pleased with them. They're like, well, but that's what you told us to do. But it's all about what is true before you do what he tells you to do. The indicative first, and then the imperative. And the indicative is Romans 1 through 11 that speaks about the, the mercies of God. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that therefore concludes everything. And here's my appeal based upon everything that's said. It's by the mercies of God. Romans 1 through 11 has been all about the mercies of God, how God's been merciful to us in Christ, granting salvation to sinners through faith in Jesus, leading, leading us to sanctification through security in Christ. We're, we're not sanctified to gain merit from God. We are, are secure in Jesus. Therefore, we pursue our sanctification all according to God's sovereign plan. That's God's mercy. And in light of God's mercy to us, we should respond in giving ourselves wholly over to him. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, giving all of ourselves to God, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the command in Romans 12, verse 1. And all the commands that we've seen in chapter 12 are just about giving ourselves, giving ourselves to God completely. Whether it's a mind, our emotions, our passions, our service, 
our love, however it is. And um, really beginning in verse 14, it's about mercy and culminating here in verses 19 through 21 about mercy. Now, before we read the text and get in, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that there aren't maybe people in our congregation who have had an abortion before. I don't know of any, but there may be. And if that's the case, my heart goes out to you just because of the the guilt, the difficulty that that brings. When you think about a million abortions, don't just think about babies that are that are lost. Think about mothers who have lifelong consequences of dealing with their actions. And I just say, if that is you today, that the forgiveness of Jesus extends even to those who have abortion. He died on the cross for the sin of abortion. And lest we in our lives at Rock Valley Bible Church think that sanctity of life this Sunday is, is one of arrogance. Look, we have kept it. We have kept it pure. Realize that really this is a, an opportunity for us to celebrate sanctity of life by way of mercy. And giving mercy to those who are hurting. Because that's what Romans 12 Nine through, 19 through 21, these last three verses talk about, they really talk about, about our extending mercy to others. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In these cases, Paul is dealing basically with something done wrong. Somehow you have been wronged, and his counsel is really simple. He says in verse 1 that we need to, to leave it with God. Don't, don't take justice in your own hands. Let God deal with the consequence of your sins. And, and, and rather, he says, rather than, than avenging it, right, show kindness. Verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. This has been the theme of verses 14 and following. Look at verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Those who wrong you, you bless them instead. You don't curse them. Or verse 17, which says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. Right? When evil comes upon you, you don't repay with evil. Rather, you show kindness. You give them water. You, you give them drink. You give them kindness. Or, as it all comes to a head in verse 21, we overcome with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, when evil is done in this world, we are to overcome it with good. I've just kind of shown you the, the roadmap of, of where we're going today. And I just want to show you just the emphasis, really, upon overcoming evil with good. Jay Adams wrote a, wrote a little book, um, an exposition of Romans twelve fourteen to 21. Uh, Maggie gave this to me to borrow recently. And uh, I just said, oh, I'm, I'm preaching through that. It's a practical exposition of Romans twelve fourteen to 21. And the title of the book is How to Overcome Evil. And, and his, his premise here is that when you need to overcome evil, you need to do with good, is verse 21 culminates and says, and he says that governs the thought of all of verses 14 and following. just want to read for you a little bit from, from his book of, of what it is he says. He says, the Christian is to aggressively, yea, violently press the battle against the forces of evil until he wins. He must overcome evil. That is war language. Victory. He must have victory over evil. But in doing so, he may not 
use just any sort of weapons or any sort of strategy that he wishes. On the contrary, his orders are explicit. God's strategy calls for the weapons of righteousness. Overcome evil with good. He says the world's methods will not do. The world's weapons are not adequate. The world's strategy must be abandoned. When others do evil, you must do good. When others return evil for evil, you must return good for evil. These are your Lord's battle orders. You have no choice. You must follow them. He did not leave the planning to you. Then he says this. He says, evil is powerful, but good is more powerful. In fact, evil is so powerful that only good has the power to overcome evil. Darkness can be driven away only by light. And that's why the Christian will fail to achieve his purposes if he uses any lesser force. In other words, right, this, this force that we have, the, the way to overcome evil is to take up the divine weapon that God has given to us to overcome evil, and it's called good. My message this morning is entitled, Overcome Evil with Good. And I say this is so contrary to our nature. Because in our nature is this, right? When someone strikes us, we want to strike back at them. Or when when someone does evil, we want to strike back at them and, and get them for that. But Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forced you to go to one mile, go two miles with him. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That's the response of mercy. As we think about abortion, as we think about this world, the number of hurting women, the way to deal with that is mercy and extending goodness and kindness, even amidst evil that's been done. So the response that Paul is, is calling us to here this morning. So I want to look back here at verse 19, which I simply say, leave it with God. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. I mean, notice, first of all, the tenderness of Paul. When he just says, beloved, that is, loved ones. Now, Paul knew how hard this command was to keep. He knew that when someone wrongs us, there's everything in us that wants to respond in kind to him. And to help soften the blow of this difficult command, he begins with a word of affection. It's a good word of reminder for us too, right? Is it when we have difficult words words to tell the people to say, let's precede it with words of affection and grace and affirmation. Second, notice how unbending Paul's exhortation is here. He says, never avenge yourselves. There's no time and no place for your own retaliation. That's what Paul is saying. It's not usually don't avenge yourself. It is never do this. Rather, he says, leave it in the hands of the Lord. That's where I get verse 19. Leave it with God. And, and, and here's the thing that's going to help you deal, leave it with God. Did you know, have you ever thought about this? Is that the Lord will deal with other people perfectly. I love that thought. Right? right? That, that God's justice will be exact. His mercy will be extended appropriately. One commentator, Everett Harrison, said this, and I'll quote this several times throughout my message because I believe it's so good. He says, Avenging yourself would be to trespass 
on the province of God, the great judge of all. You realize that? That when you avenge yourself, you basically saying, I'm taking the law into my own hands. I'm going to be judge and jury, and I'm going to execute the justice. Whose job is that? That's God. In fact, even what he says here in verse 19, it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And when we take vengeance, we're basically taken away from God's job. God's job is a vengeance. It's not our, our job. Harrison continues, trust him to take care of the situation. He will not bungle. He will not be too lenient or too severe. God's judgment will be perfect. In matters of, of vengeance, best left in the hands of God. Now, as illustrated, David in the Old Testament gives a good picture of this. In 1 Samuel 25, we read of this um, interaction that David has with, uh, with Nabal. Shortly after Samuel had died, David was in the wilderness of Paran with his men. And there were some shepherds out there, and he helped protect them, and he cared for them. He showed kindness to them. And um, so at some point, he went to the owner of these shepherds, this rich man whose name was Nabal. And, in, and he sent some men in peace. He sent some men in kindness. But he said, some feast is coming up, and uh, we need food for the feast. Could you, could you help us with that feast? And uh, in turn, rather than receiving help, Nabal railed at him and refused to give him help and said, who is this David? Who are these men? Get him out of here. Basically swore at him and, and cursed them. Well, David felt wronged and gathered his men together to take vengeance of himself upon Nabal. And on their way to take vengeance on Nabal, they met Nabal's wife. His name was Abigail. And uh, she pleaded for her husband's safety. And David then turned away. From vengeance, saying to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Right? Thank the Lord that He stirred in your heart to send you to me to stop me from taking my vengeance and taking the job away from Him. That's what David said. In other words, right? Leave it to God. And so uh, Abigail returned to her house, found her husband feasting like a king, very drunk. And so he went to bed that night. I assume he was passed out. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of him, Nabal told these things to her husband, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. It's a little bit like... Casting burning coals upon your enemy is what took place in some regards in verse 20. But listen to David's response to that. And just in light of vengeance, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So in other words, right, David didn't avenge Nabal for this wrong being done to him. He gave it to the Lord and the Lord did by striking him down killing him in 10 days. And I say, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Trust Him to take care of your situation because He won't be too lenient, nor will He be too severe. God will deal justly with those who do you wrong. I remember as a young school boy, I was, I was second grade or third grade or so, and I was bothered by another classmate, another schoolboy. Today we'd call it being bullied. 
We didn't have that terminology back then, but I remember this little boy would threaten me and he would tease me and he'd chase me around and he would tell me how I liked these other girls and, you know, kind of go after me. And I, I, I remember many a time I would come into the classroom after recess in tears because of the torment this boy inflicted upon me. And, um, you know, we were friends, but there were times when he was cruel to me. And um, by the time we're in high school, we hardly mixed it all. He, he was a very popular sort of kid, and, and my expectation is that he, he was a teaser and a bother and just a troublemaker in, in general. And it came to pass that when we were in high school, this boy was at a party, and he was drunk. And there was a swimming pool at his house where he was, and he took a bounce off the, swimming, off the diving board headfirst into the bottom of the pool and hit his head, did something to his neck, Maybe was underwater for some time. I'm not quite sure of the details, but I know that his life forever changed that day in that moment. He was in the hospital, in rehab for months. Um, The trauma to his head caused some long-lasting brain damage, which affected his intellect. Uh, I remember he couldn't quite speak correctly, couldn't quite think correctly. I remember him walking with a limp because something had 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 hurt. Maybe his arms weren't totally useful. He'd never hold a job again. I don't believe he's ever married or, or had children. Now, I'm not saying, okay, be clear, I'm not saying this was God's vengeance upon him for what he did to me when I was in second and third grade. I have no idea of the causality of the divine tribunal. But it is a picture of how the Lord can be your avenger of how someone teasing you now, God can deal with you in a way like, like he struck down Nabal and killed him, like he struck down my classmate and disabled him. And the Lord has struck down <clears throat> many throughout history that you know nothing about or how that was or what sort of, of reason that was. But I just say this, let the Lord strike people down. Don't you strike people down. We think about the abortion issue. Don't strike down those who have committed abortion. They need your mercy. God will deal with them in their wrath if they don't repent. They don't seek mercy. But maybe abortion is the very thing where they feel the the evil that they've done and they, they see how awful they've been and then run to Jesus who finds them and forgives them. And God will give them mercy and grace far more than than you will. But don't take justice in your own hands. It's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Right there in verse, verse 19, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. One of the final words that Moses spoke to the people of Israel. Moses assured them that God would intervene. That God would repay and that God would make all things right in the end. Listen to what God promises in Deuteronomy 32 verse 35. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Their foot shall slip in due time. You recognize that phrase? Their foot shall slip in due time. Help me now. Who remembers that? Huh? No, well, that says we will never slip. But he's saying their foot will slip in due time. Does anyone know? Someone preached a sermon on that half of the text. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. Their foot shall slip in due time. That was what Jonathan Edwards preached in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And when he preached that sermon, it was used, I think it was on the third time he preached that sermon, was used to the conversion of many people as Jonathan Edwards really 
set out the reality of what it is that sinners who hate the Lord are in his hands. He says they will slip in due time. That, that's in a time in the future. God's going to see to it that they will slip. And Edward says that nothing that keeps the wicked men at any one moment out of hell. There's nothing that keeps the wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Because vengeance is mine, God says. I'm going to repay. And their foot will slip. But the promise, of course, of the Scripture and the promise that those people heard when, when Jonathan, Edward preached, uh, Jonathan Edwards preached in Enfield, Connecticut was, woe is me, I'm undone. And they repented and their foot then didn't slip because the Lord was there to uphold them. And in the context of Deuteronomy, it's, it's really very much the same. That Moses tells those in Israel, he will make the feet of his enemies slip. He will hide his face from his enemies. God will see what their end will be. He will heap disasters upon them. He will send the teeth of beasts against them. He will cut them to pieces and wipe them from human memory. And when it came to their own enemies, they need not worry. They didn't need to take vengeance in their own hand because God would repay and deal perfectly with their enemies. And so likewise, God will deal perfectly well with the justice and vengeance of our enemies. We don't have to worry about that. Trust Him to take care of the situation. He will not be too lenient or too severe. And you'll hear something very interesting. Those with a strong eschatology can have a softness towards others. Right? If you really believe and trust that God is the one who's going to take care of everything in the end, He's going to exact perfect justice and bring it all to pass, we don't have to worry about that. And we can be incredibly soft people today. But if your view of the coming judgment and the power and the wrath of God is like less or not strong or weak, you're going to create a hard people who are going to feel like, well, they've got to do what God isn't going to do. But when you firmly believe that God is going to do everything that He has said that He will do in His wrath, we can show great mercy. And that's, that's really the message here of, of verse 19. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God because He says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And when we show mercy, we can also show kindness. My second point, not only do we leave it with God that's wrong, but we also then... Extend that to show kindness. Paul said this in verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Again, let's go back to David for this illustration. Because it just shows it so well. We turn to David's relationship this time with King Saul. His relationship with him was filled with tension. From the moment that Samuel anointed David as king, future king, it was clear that David would succeed Saul as king, and it made Saul incredibly jealous and envious. And it was David, not Saul, who defeated Goliath. And it was David, not Saul, who was the hero among the people, slaying his ten thousands, when Saul only slayed his thousands. And yet, David never sought to take the throne by force. He served Saul until the day he died. Even in the midst of Saul's cruelty to David, David responded by showing kindness You know, there were times when the Lord would send a, an evil spirit upon Saul, a harmful spirit that tortured and tormented Saul. And, and, and people figured out that David played this nice music and music helped calm his soul. And so, so when, when, Dave, when Saul got this spirit 
right? From God is what it says. We got this spirit of tormenting. David would come in. Verse, first Samuel 16, 23. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. And the harm, harmful spirit departed from him. Well, one day when David's playing his, his harp or whatever he's playing and Saul's got this harmful spirit and maybe it's not working quite so well. He picked up a spear in his hand and thrust it and hurled it at David. Think, I'm going to pin him against the wall. Right? Pin the tail on the donkey. Right, Pin the spear on David. And uh, he missed. David evaded him twice. But David sought no vengeance against Saul. Even though Saul sent him out to battle in the Philistine, against the Philistines, hoping that David would be killed by them, that they would take vengeance against David. Rather, he came back as a war hero. And the jealousy of Saul grew greater and greater. And Saul, one night, 1 Samuel 19, 1, spoke to Jonathan and all his servants, they should kill David. Let, let's wait where he is. Let's kill him. And he escaped through the night. Um, even as Saul sent messengers to watch him, they might kill him. But as David escaped, Saul pursued and so picture it, Saul and the whole army pursuing David like this fox being, being pursued at a foxhound. And David fled. He went to Gath, where the Philistines were. He was almost killed by Achish, king of Gath. And he hid in the cave of Adullam. And he was in the wilderness. And also while Saul seeking to, to kill him. And at one point, he was in the wilderness of En Gedi, hiding in a cave. And Saul came out with 3,000 men just to kill David. And at one point... Yes, it happened. Saul entered the very cave where Dave was hiding. And uh, he entered the cave to relieve himself. This is what little boys like to think of about King Saul relieving himself and everything that that means, like using the cave as a restroom, perhaps. Perhaps he took a nap to relieve himself. We don't exactly know. But at any rate, when the men saw it, they, they said to David, they probably whispered to him, hey, here's the day. Lord spoke to you, saying, Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand. You shall do it to him now as it seems good to you. In other words, kill him. David didn't take vengeance. Rather, remember what he did? He cut off a little bit of his robe, hid back away. Saul went, Saul left. And then he told his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing. To my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up, left the cave, went on his own way. So, so Saul goes out. He says, I can't do that. But he did cut that little garment off. And David fully understood that he needed to leave the wrath to God, rather show kindness. And then later, I'm not sure how much later, right? Later that afternoon or something, David shows up at the, at the, at the head of the cave lifts up the garment that he cut from Saul and said, Saul, look, you were in my hands and I didn't take vengeance upon you. I'm not seeking to kill you. And Saul was broken. In showing kindness, right, these, these coals were reaped upon his head. Saul lifted up his voice and wept. First Samuel twenty four seventeen. he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. When your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap 
burning coals in his head. Now, what this heaping burning coals upon his head means, we, we don't know. It's a quote from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. But most, most commentators are pretty much agreed that it means somehow you, you're bringing shame upon someone else. They're doing bad to you and you're not retaliating kind. Rather, you are showing love and therefore that heaps burning coals of, of shame and conviction, perhaps that leads to repentance. Because it's what Saul was. He lifted up his voice and wept. He, he knew that he was more righteous than I. And so he, he was filled with this shame. And yet it was only temporary because he came back later. Two chapters later in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 26, David is again being pursued by Saul in the wilderness. And 1 Samuel 26 tells the story of how Saul was in the wilderness of Ziph seeking to kill David. And one night, they're, they're sleeping down there, and David took his buddy Abishai, snuck into the camp while they went to sleep. And do you remember what he saw? He saw the sword, the spear of Saul, right there next to his bed. And he took his spear, and he took his water bottle. And they snuck back from the camp. And here's the story. I'll just read it for you, what I summarized. God, Abishai said to David, hey, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And I will not strike him twice. Just said once, I can just get him and boom, just like Jael did. Right? Tent pegging Sisera in that, that, that tent peg. In Judges 5, it's told about. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, as the Lord lives, let the Lord... As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that's in his head, at his head, and the jug of water, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And so... David basically said, I can't avenge. I can't avenge that. That's not in my hands to do. He clearly understood Romans 12, verse 19. He clearly understood Deuteronomy 32, 35. The vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But the next day, David stood afar off. His son came up and showed everyone Saul's spear and his jug of water and declared, I'm not against King Saul. And the burning coals heaped upon Saul's head. Saul said this, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and made a great mistake. And I, I hope you see here as David's kindness led Saul to sorrow and shame and repentance of some sort. Now, for sure, his repentance is temporary at best, right? Because in the very next chapter in 1 Samuel 29, he's, he's seeking the witch at Endor and seeking just more things just to connive and but but the point is still this right it's kindness shown to enemies that will overcome evil kindness shown to enemies overcomes evil three leads us to our last point how we need to overcome evil overcome evil with kindness overcome evil with good because good is the very thing, the very weapon that God has given us to overcome evil. Think about it, this is how Jesus overcame our evil. He overcame our evil with his good. Rather than condemning us in our sin, he showed us grace. Rather than destroying us, he 
allowed himself to be destroyed. And it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Did you realize, think about in your evangelism with other people, right? In, in, in seeking to lead people to Jesus, it's your kindness to people that will help them see the glories of Christ. It's not pointing out their every sin, what's wrong. See, there's a difference. Uh, um, Rosaria Butterfield taught Avani this. We've been thinking about this a lot. There's a difference between acceptance and approval. Acceptance means you accept someone made in the image of God. Approval means you approve of everything they do. And we need to walk that line. We don't approve them, but we can accept people. We can extend kindness and love and grace to people in goodness, trusting that that's going to be a way that leads them unto repentance. And that's how we should deal with our enemies. That's how we should deal with those who don't know Christ. Extend kindness and love and grace. Again, I turn back to, to Jay Adams. And I just want to, again, read this second, another, another quote for you. It says this. Um, let's see, I'm trying to... Here we go. Good is so much more powerful than evil that by comparison... Evil is but a pop gun. Good, in contrast, is a nuclear weapon. What a tragedy then to see Christian soldiers for whom God has provided such an arsenal running about the battlefield with pop guns with little courts dangling from a string at the end of the parable, at the end of a barrel. If it were not, uh, yeah. Yet that's the picture. Christians. Little pop gun. You know, when you get out and you put that thing back in, it's a little air pop. That's the picture. When Christians fear evil and evildoers, they do so only because they are unsure or unskilled in their use of their own weapons. There's no other reason for doing so. While the power of evil is real, it's no longer to be considered power at all by comparison with the power of God. Don't be afraid of that unsaved mother-in-law, that unsaved boss, that unsaved husband, that unsaved teenager or parents. What can they do if you oppose their evil deeds with good? Before good pursued consistently, faithfully, and vigorously, the enemy at length will turn in defeat. Christ says, overcome evil with good, because that's the way it can be done. You are destined to be a winner. Christian, begin to demonstrate your destiny now. Reflect on this one thing. The cross is the supreme example of returning good for evil. In it, the greater power of good can be seen most clearly. Here in its supreme manifestation, evil gathered together all of its resources and flung them into the face of God's Son. Yet what was the outcome? You know the answer. Good gloriously triumphed over evil. And not only did Christ transform the cross into a stepping stone to the resurrection... But the very death by which the good seemed defeated instead brought about the ultimate destruction of sin and Satan. What Christian, Christian, thinking clearly about the meeting of good and evil at the cross, can ever seriously doubt the great power of good? The cross of Christ has, has effected like so much good in the world, like ultimate good. Anything before God is all at the cross of Christ. 
If you doubt whether I'm saying overcome evil with good, you just need, you're denying the cross, is what he says. Do you, so do you really believe it? Do you really believe the best way to overcome evil is good? Or do you still think that it's best if you, well, I, I got to hurt him. I got to get him back. Well, let me close a few thoughts about this text as it relates to abortion. 20 years ago, September 30th, 2000, so maybe that's whatever, 18 and a half years ago, September 30th, 2000, I'm not sure if many of you remember this, a priest in Rockford sought to take justice in his own hands. You remember this, the abortion clinic? Any of you remember this? A Catholic priest rammed his car into the abortion clinic Saturday and chopped at walls and windows with an axe before being subdued by the building's owner. You remember this at all? Some of you do? We weren't, we just moved up to Rockford. No, 2000. No, we, we were thinking about moving. We were making a lot of trips to Rockford from DeKalb, and uh, this happened. And I'll just read what CNN reports. Father John Earl, 32, of St. Patrick's Catholic Church in nearby Rochelle, was arrested and charged with burglary and felony criminal damage. Rockford Deputy Police Chief Dominic Iasparo said police got a call about 8 o'clock in the morning that a car had rammed through a garage door at the building housing the Northern Illinois Women's Center and an intruder was on the premises. When the police arrived minutes later, they heard shots from the second floor. They ran upstairs to find Earl lying on the floor and the building owner, Wayne Webster, holding a shotgun. Webster said he fired two shots to stop Earl as he swung his axe. Earl was not injured and Webster was not charged. He had a permit for his weapon. He was going to split my head with an axe, Webster told CNN. He was berserk. He was screaming. I fired two shots into the wall and I forced him to lie down on the floor. I know that priest. I grew up together with him. We played baseball together. We went to school together. We graduated together on the same day, 1985. He went off to be a priest. I went off to be a pastor. He went off to bring people to God. I went off to show people how to get to God. It's a difference between a priest and a pastor. People know him as he's written in John Earl. I know, his name's Duke to me. I can't call him John. His name's Duke Earl. And uh, I appreciate his zeal. I appreciate how he fully understood the issue in those days that that abortion clinic was evil and wicked and babies are being murdered and he wanted to stop it. I appreciate that passion. But he totally missed how it is you're supposed to accomplish evil. He was trying to overcome evil with evil. And his axe was like a pop gun, to use J. Adams' language and terminology. He missed the way. The way to bring change in America with abortion isn't to take vengeance in our own hands and be vigilantes and go around killing abortion doctors. That's not going to work. Rather, we're to leave it to the wrath of God. Next time, in Romans 13, we're going to see that the government is the agency of God's wrath. Look at Romans chapter 13 and verse 4. The government, he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the way to combat evil in our, our generation of, of abortion is not by taking justice into our own hands, but so as to work with the government who is the hands of God's wrath 
to deal with things appropriately. So we need to work on laws inhibiting abortion. We need to work on laws preventing abortion. We need to protest peacefully, right? We need to pray. And I am so thankful to God that through peaceful means, the government closed the abortion clinic in Rockford September 30th, 2012. Twelve years after Duke Girl rammed his car into the garage of that um, front door of that clinic. This doesn't stop our crusade against the evils of abortion. It is still here. We need to make it known. We need to let people know what's taking place. But our warfare is, is doing good. And so that's why this day, I mean, I had Amanda stand up and talk about the Pregnancy Care Center. I was so encouraged by all the good they're doing, by taking the girls in, those who have unwanted pregnancies, and really caring for them and really helping them. And I love the, the testimony that pregnancy care centers across our land have brought, that it's not evangelical, it's not Christian saying, yeah, abortion's wrong, and just having children, whatever. Babies, ch- mothers have children, have babies, and then just leaving them to themselves with the accusation that comes, well, you don't even care for them. You know what? With the number of pregnancy care centers that have, that have sprouted up across our nation, the unbelieving world cannot charge the believing world with hypocrisy in this matter. There are some 3,000 pregnancy care centers that are arisen. In contrast, about 800 abortion clinics in our land. Without any governmental help, without any governmental funding, pregnancy care centers have been funded just by people like you and me, like, like churches, like Christian businesses, like people just giving money so as to help and care really for the unborn. And basically what it is, that's showing mercy, that's showing kindness, that's showing grace to them. And I think in, in some ways we can just do a, a small part. We have given, we've given money, we just need to pray, we need to bring the care, pregnancy care center just more to the forefront of our being uh, involved. And I think Amanda will probably help us. She's there and she's talking about that. That's her job. And we'll have an easy end to seek to do all that we can do. To have this evil in our land go away. Not by avenging it ourselves. But placing it in the hands of our avenger. The Lord. And the Lord works through the government. As we'll see next week. By seeking to help and resolve that issues. So I think that's a, a fair treatment of the text. Of how we need to deal with things with our personal grievances and I think even from a bigger perspective how to deal with things about the abortion issue in America. So it fit perfectly. So I preach that next time will be Romans 13. So let's pray. Father, I would pray that you would help us to know how it is to follow after God the, the ways of your counsel. God, you have given us a suffering servant, a suffering savior who died, O oh God, in many ways a, a passive death, though he himself said, I give my life up of my own account. It was never out of his control, but he willingly laid himself down. He came in the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was despised and mocked and forsaken. He was ridiculed. If you are the Son of Man, take, you, take yourself down from the cross. He was hated and despised and rejected, and he set the stage for us. Jesus didn't fight in return. He says if he wanted to, he could have called 12,000 legions of angels to come and protect him. But that's not the way of God. The way of God is humble and gracious and giving in love. And so, God, I pray that you would help us, uh, church, to see that. Thank you of just the example of the 
abortion clinic here in town that was defeated through love and grace and mercy. That's how you've always progressed your kingdom. We pray that you would teach us how to do that. God, not because we don't hate abortion. We do. We, we hate every evil in that because it is wicked. And yet, God, we know you hate it far more and you can deal with it justly far better than we can. And so we entrust it to you. We pray you'd help us and guide us in weeks and months and years to come. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.